I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm Eno Stutman. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Amber Duke. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we got some good topics for you today. Um, first, Ben is going to talk about the Supreme Court declining to take a case on racial quotas in high schools here in Virginia, where I used to live in Virginia. Um, then I'm going to talk about the recent ethics hearings in Georgia about Fannie Willis and how she's potentially going to get disqualified from handling the Trump Georgia litigation, Trump Georgia criminal cases. Uh, then Amber is going to talk about Biden's plan to upend Title IX. And finally, Inez is going to talk about um, Biden's attempt to do loan forgiveness for very clearly political reasons. So um, we'll start off with Ben. Thanks, Will. And yes, the conservative Supreme Court strikes again. That is the major headline in connection with the court's refusal to grant cert in this case of coalition for TJ versus Fairfax County School Board. Uh, as Will alluded to, this case kind of pits students and parents in the Fairfax County School District against the district over the district's overhauling of the admissions policy for this hyper-competitive Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, a magnet school which uh, was disproportionately populated with Asian American students, typically between 65 and 75% of the student population consisted of Asian Americans, selected almost entirely on the basis of a series of standardized tests in a variety of subjects, and then a couple of teacher recommendations, essentially. And starting around 2020, there started to be some dissent uh, voiced by the principal of the school and at least one board member, essentially saying that the school, lamenting that the school didn't adequately represent uh, the racial makeup of the population of the county, which happens to have a pretty significant percentage, incidentally, of immigrants. I think the number cited is something like 30 percent uh, immigrant population within the district. So what did the district do uh, in 2020, like like all bad things that emerged in 2020? Well, it sought to create, quote unquote, equity, although it did not frame it that way. They overhauled the policy largely based on standardized tests that led to outcomes that some in power did not like in terms of the makeup of the classes and instead decided to change the policies in a facially race neutral way, but which had the effect of substantially decreasing the percentage of Asian Americans who comprised incoming freshman classes. So whereas originally they had this largely standardized test based model, they instead switched to a model that not that first of all, uh, was drawn from percentages of each uh, school within the district. So they allocated seats to a percentage of students hailing from a variety of middle schools within the district. And they incorporated standards, not only including grades, but a quote unquote portrait sheet, a problem solving essay and experience factors. So these uh, putatively race neutral factors here, the portrait sheet supposedly was about measuring applicants soft skills like the ability to work with other students 
The experience factors include eligibility for free or reduced price meals, status as an English language learner, eligibility for special education services, and attendance at a public middle school that previously sent few students to this prestigious magnet school. So what happened after the policy was implemented, the number of Asian American applicants accepted fell to around 55%, whereas before the classes ranged between 65 and 75% Asian American students. So this coalition sued the school district on the same grounds as existed in the SFFA, the Harvard case the Supreme Court took up, where they basically said under the 14th Amendment, it's guarantee of equal protection, that this was a discriminatory policy that was being implemented. And the district court for the Eastern District of Virginia agreed, and they enjoined that policy. They barred it. It was appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and a panel there reversed that decision. And the judges had varying reasons. All the rulings sort of differed within that panel, which screamed out, of course, for the Supreme Court to step in with clarity, not only on the varying rationales that were presented, but also on the fact that their ruling seemed to fly in the face of the SFFA v. Harvard ruling. Uh, as the petitioners wrote to the Supreme Court when they sought cert back in August 2023, quote, despite the evidence that the board chose the new criteria to further its racial balancing goal and evidence the policy substantially reduced both the raw number and the proportion of Asian Americans admitted, the Fourth Circuit held that the admissions change did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. So on Tuesday, the 20th, SCOTUS stepped in and ruled and they denied cert. They will not hear the case. Uh, and as Justice Alito, one of the two dissenting justices noted, now the Fourth Circuit's ruling is going to be has been used as precedent cited by other circuits already in related cases. And this would seem to create chaos because the ruling, the Supreme Court's unwillingness to take up the Fourth Circuit's rationale here would seem to undercut essentially the SFFA, the Harvard decision. So what was that Fourth Circuit ruling? Well, as Alito said in the dissent, quote, a divided Fourth Circuit panel reversed and held the plaintiff's claim failed simply because the challenge changes did not reduce the percentage of Asian American admittees below the percentage of Asian American students in the schools in the jurisdiction served by the magnet school. What the Fourth Circuit majority held, in essence, is that intentional racial discrimination is constitutional so long as it is not too severe. This reasoning is indefensible and it cries out for correction. And he lays out why the district court's reasoning made sense and why the Fourth Circuit panel's reasoning was asinine. He says the Fourth Circuit panel completely distorted the meaning of disparate impact, even though the new policy bore, quote unquote, more heavily on Asian American applicants because it diminished their chances of admission while improving the chances of every other racial group. The panel majority held that there was no disparate impact because they were still overrepresented in the TJ student body. There's a clearly mistaken understanding of what it means for a law or policy to have disparate effect on the members of a particular racial or ethnic group. He goes on to say the simple fact that Asian Americans were still overrepresented in the student body was enough to doom the coalition's equal protection claim at the Fourth Circuit and now apparently at the Supreme Court. As far as the Fourth Circuit was concerned, the board could have adopted a policy designed solely to reduce the Asian American offer rate and still evaded liability. The holding below effectively licenses official actors to discriminate against any racial group with impunity as long as that group continues to perform at a higher rate than other groups. 
That is indefensible. And he concludes the Fourth Circuit's reasoning is a virus that may spread if not promptly eliminated. And so that brings us to uh, the state of the challenges to affirmative action now. And I guess the question for this group is, uh, what does this mean now for efforts in a whole variety of areas, not just in schools, but in the workplaces to combat sanctioned racial discrimination by other means on, under quote unquote facially neutral policies? Does this not create chaos within the courts? And will that not lead to uh, chaos, certainly from the boardroom to school districts across the country? What do you make of the Supreme Court's unwillingness to grant cert here and the fact that there were only two dissenters to boot in this case? I'm very disturbed by it. I uh, covered this case a few months ago and talked to one of the lead attorneys on it, and it seemed like such a slam dunk. Um, one of the other things that TJ did in addition to changing the admissions policy was they also capped the number of students who could come from each middle school in the district. So the majority of students at TJ before came from the three Asian American majority middle schools. Um, so they sort of try to work around direct racial discrimination by saying, oh, well, you can only have a certain number from each middle school, which effectively reduces the Asian American population. And um, the lead attorney on this, Aaron Wilcox from Pacific Legal Foundation, told me at the time, you have to be able to show that not only is there a disparate impact on one racial group, but that there was an intent for it to happen. One of the things that's so great about this case is that we have text messages we have school board meeting transcripts where members were very clear on what they were what they meant to do. So this seems so cut and dry, and it's beyond disappointing that the Supreme Court has declined to take this up. Yeah, there, there's an additional uh, element to this that I think will um, makes it even more disappointing, and and that is we are unlikely to get these kinds of cases for very long because a lot of this relies, as Amber said on um, text messages and, and emails and writing things down. That's like a huge part of SFFA relied on admissions office communications. People will simply stop putting this stuff in writing. They already probably have stopped, put it, stopped putting it in writing, um, at least in the, in the education context. I think once again, this, this underscores a couple things. One, um, you can't rely for your politics on the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court is a backstop. Here, I think they erred in not being a more aggressive backstop, but you can't like hang your politics on on the court. That's not truly its role. Um, and and so that would, I guess, I, that would argue for uh, more boldness that I do think we have seen um, on the right as of late. In, in, for example, Chris Rupo laid out um, a, an agenda on, on this on this regard, but. Um, really starting to, to look at how uh, the Civil Rights Act, especially since the 1990s, uh, has encouraged this, this kind of discrimination, both in educational institutions and in, in private institutions, and how we can rectify that in terms of, of, um, of amending or reforming the law to discourage this kind of thing. Um, third, once again, I don't know that this blunts the impact of that first Supreme Court decision, which I always called on this podcast and elsewhere, um, always thought would have much more impact on the private sector than it does actually anywhere in the education sector because 
in the education sector, as you see in this case, um, in Thomas Jefferson High School, you're dealing with actors who are really ideologically committed, and they're going to try to evade, um, you know, they're, they're going to try to discriminate on the basis of race by other means, by by evasion. And every one of those evasions is going to lead to a new case. And then if we're going to have to have the Supreme Court rule on like every possible evasion um, and replacement metric that people who are really dedicated to discriminating on the basis of race are going to apply instead of a, a direct racial quota. Um, and that's gonna take a lot of time and it's gonna require a very dedicated Supreme Court that we actually apparently do not have. So on the other hand, in situations where you're not dealing with super, super ideological actors like most of corporate America, more of what you're dealing with is the, the CYA you know, impulse, right? Can I possibly um, be sued for this? Is like, is there a possibility there'll be a judgment against me on this? Um, and in that case, I think we are in a much, much better position after SFFA than we were before it. Um, and I think you do see that. You see firms and other big corporations quietly putting away their their um, special, blatantly um, illegal uh, sort of uh, tools for quote unquote diversity. Now, not all of them. Some of them are still going full steam ahead. I expect we will have a lot of litigation over this issue in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, recently, I heard about one where apparently you get a bonus. Uh, you get a bonus of $3,000 if you recruit somebody to the firm um, where if, if the person is an underrepresented minority, but if you recruit a white guy, you get zero, right? I mean, these are like things that are blatantly illegal, uh, blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, so I think there'll be plenty of fodder there for years to come. And I think it will litigation in that private context will be more successful in setting incentives uh, when you're not dealing with hyper ideological actors the way that you are in the education space. I'll be quick. Uh, I'm a little bit less disappointed in this than the group, just because I think like the Supreme Court not granting cert in any particular case will probably have some more to do with vehicle issues. Uh, I think in general, they're against racial discrimination. I can expect more positive holdings from them in the future. Um, but I don't think, I don't think anybody should get blackpilled about one particular case not getting taken in this field. I mean, that said, obviously, like, you know, it's appalling what they're doing in TJ, but I I, I wouldn't be blackpilled that, and, and I would think that we will see better and good Supreme Court holdings on this issue in the future. Um, so moving on to my topic, which is uh, the Fannie Willis case imploding. So I, if last week, we had some very, very good entertainment coming out of live streams in the uh, municipal court system in Georgia, where we got to see Trump and other attorneys for various defendants in Georgia on the uh, J6 matter, get to question Fannie Willis, Nathan Wade on the stand. Now, I mean, the, the basic gravamen, the problem here is that it looks like Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade were dating as of as early as 2019. Um, and when this investigation started in 2022, it's not merely that Willis employed Wade, it's that Willis signed a contract with Wade to be a special prosecutor paying him 250 bucks an hour to work on the case. Um, and that's just a no-no. That's a massive conflict of interest. You're not allowed as a prosecutor to use the justice system or to use any prosecution as a means to enrich yourself. yourself. And here it looks like Willis uh, essentially paid Wade hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees as a special prosecutor. Remember, her local prosecutors don't get that kind of pay. And then got the benefit of that because Wade on paid for various trips to Aruba and to um, the Bahamas to Napa Valley, uh, and so it's 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 a clear form of corruption. And so 
Um, it was a very interesting hearing to listen to. Much of the early part of it was this desperate attempt by, I mean, the the, the, the people representing Fannie Willis to say, oh, you should sanction the Trump lawyers. How dare they even bring this up? They have no good faith basis to do so. Object, object, object. And then we get, you know, a testimony from a former roommate or sorry, a former landlord of Miss Willis that, yeah, these people were dating as early as 2019. Um, there was further testimony from um, Mr. Wade's former law partner, uh, who also apparently served as Mr. Wade's lawyer during his divorce, um, saying, and he also apparently was about to testify that they had a relationship as early as 2019, but then was unable to do so because uh, Mr. Wade invoked his privilege. And then Wade and Willis got up there and, and made a bunch of really remarkable claims. I mean, they again denied it, said their relationship didn't begin until after 2022. Wade was uh, called out on some uh, apparently conflicting testimony between the answers to the interrogatories he gave in his divorce proceedings, where he said he hadn't been hadn't cheated on his wife or hadn't had any affairs during the marriage, um, which conflicted with a sworn statement he gave to the court in this matter, which said that um, he did have a, you know, a romantic relationship with Miss Willis as of 2022. Um, when questioned about that, he said there was no tension because when he said, you know, when he, he says that when he answered those questions during the divorce proceeding, he was saying, oh, I didn't count when I was unhappily married because I, from my view, the marriage ended once we had decided to separate, um, which is facile and ridiculous. I think ultimately what the judge is going to have to do here you know, whether or not they're able to actually prove that Willis and Wade are lying about the beginning of their relationship or the finances involved. Um, because of course, Miss Willis claims that she always reimbursed Mr. Wade with cash, untraceable cash, How you know, a very, very convenient answer. Um, I think the judge is ultimately going to have to find that at a minimum, there's an appearance of impropriety. Uh, there's testimony that suggests that they had their relationship began earlier, um, and they aren't able to corroborate or substantiate the idea that they that Miss Willis didn't benefit from all the money she was funneling to Mr. Wade. So they'll have to get disqualified. What happens after that is not clear. Uh, I think it'll go to the state AG and they'll determine whether or not to continue on with this prosecution. I think this is really remarkable. Uh, it's incredible how the everybody, you know, many of the people who have been going after Donald Trump in the past eight years have themselves enormous skeletons in their closet. This reminds me of the most of Michael Avenatti, uh, who, you know, spent years like trying to go after Mr. Trump and his white whale and is now serving something like 20 years in federal prison for his variety of frauds and schemes. Um, I suspect that we're more likely to see Fannie Willis in a Georgia jail cell the next year than we are to see Mr. Trump. She especially screwed herself over too because when explaining where she got that cash from, she said that she had saved it from her campaign, which is a massive campaign finance violation. You cannot keep campaign donations and use it for your personal use. You have to give it back to the party or donate it to a charity, basically anything besides what she did with the money. Um, and this was in response to the fact that there were there was no indication that cash had been withdrawn from her accounts. Um, basically, the lawyers were trying to figure out where she had this massive hoard of cash from. She also didn't know the word hoard. She thought that the lawyer was calling her a nasty name about women. Um, who are promiscuous, and uh, she couldn't answer where the, the where the money came from. So she came up with this claim that it all came from her campaign. So it would be even more incredible if she embroils herself in another legal issue regarding campaign finance violations because she was arrogant enough to think that she could get on the stand and basically outsmart these uh, these lawyers who are trying to get her disqualified from this case.
Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like a daytime television episode. This this entire trial has had a lot of moments like that, um, which which is is funny on the one hand, um, but on the other hand, highlights two things. One of which I said last week, and I just want to briefly re- retouch on. But the second, I, I think, equally important. One, uh, this just like the fact that Democrats are stuck with Kamala Harris uh, as as VP now, as Joe Biden is very clearly in decline. Um, this is one of those cases where it it is not too much of a speculation to imagine that Democrats really, really wanted to run for DA, wanted to run a black woman. Um, and then you get someone who's completely unqualified because they overemphasize the sort of affirmative action credentials. Um, and this is not somebody, I mean, when you listen to her answering these questions, this is not somebody who should be a DA. Um, she's, she's just not, it's not very smart. Like she's bringing her dad her old Black Panther dad onto the stand to talk about how, like, yeah, apparently, you know, it he always taught her to use cash, <laughs> excuse me, cash only. Like, this is this is um it's a joke. Uh and and the second thing that I did touch on last week, but I want to say again, is it really shows how reliant, how the baseline of the media is so far skewed in Democrats' direction, um, that they didn't think twice about on this level. <laughs> excuse me, I'm getting over an illness, but um, they didn't think twice at this level of case, right? We've all been talking about week after week, how this is a Rubicon crossing moment. We're going to prosecute the political opposition in America. There's going to be obviously a huge spotlight on this case. And yet that huge spotlight, uh, these people are so arrogant that, that they, it didn't prevent her from, you know, hiring her lover and like, you know, going on vacations <laughs> with him. Right. These kind of very obvious, um, these very obvious uh, surface level kind of corruption that everybody can understand. Um, And that's because they're just not used to being under the kind of scrutiny that that the right is um, where where I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this in final thoughts or something. But where like, you know, Justice Thomas is getting nastily, uh, you know, um, laughed at by John Oliver pretending to bribe him with uh, with. Uh, a coach on national TV uh, because they're, they're looking into um, without any basis, looking into like every trip he's ever taken in his life to try to find out um, who paid for it. And meanwhile, we have this democratic legal team that is engaging in blatant, obvious corruption. Bottom line. I think it's really hard to see after these, these first um, several days of trial, how, Fannie Willis can continue on this case. Now, Democrats are going to try to save the case altogether, um, but it's really hard to imagine that she avoids uh, getting dismissed from this case. And then ultimately, I mean, I think there's a strong case that she should get disbarred. I guess the one question, well, there are a lot, there are a lot of questions here. Uh, an initial response to this entire exercise is beyond the fact that there was an obvious appearance of conflict, which in and of itself is corrupting, even before you had the testimony of Wade and Willis, and then even when you had Willis engaging in Tolstoy-esque asides in terms of their length, but certainly not in their eloquence, and talking about what her favorite drink was between wine and Grey Goose, and all of the other just totally asinine things that were brought up. Why did the judge let her continue to ramble and talk? Now, he did step in in a couple of instances. Maybe this was to let Fawny Willis essentially hang herself in the case, or maybe he really was being deferential because let's note he was hired to her office originally. So uh, I'm a little skeptical about how this is ultimately going to shake out. 
the fact that we saw on full display the uh, evasiveness of some of the witnesses, the fact that Willis was so combative and acerbic and all over the place in her testimony uh, was discrediting. Um, I think Wade's testimony also called things into question. The fact you had all of these uh, supposed cash transactions. Again, yeah, you're going to use a former Black Panther as your character witness uh, beyond sketchy. But you put it all together. And one takeaway for me is just it's mortifying what our legal system looks like. And I pray to God I'm never down in Fulton County in any sort of uh, legal uh, sort of a snafu or, or, or kind of legal bind, because you look at that and how could you feel confident that the rule of law would prevail in a jurisdiction like that with a cast of characters like these? And I guess you know, the saving grace, but it's not really a saving grace for the country, is all of Trump's persecutors essentially are uniquely flawed, either in terms of ignorance, arrogance, and hubris, or uh, overzealousness and uh, essentially being obsessed with trying to destroy him. And in the end, they end up engaging in projection and kind of destroying themselves to some degree. But meanwhile, we are all the victims of a legal system that's being totally eviscerated here. So even if and when maybe Fonnie Willis is thrown off of this case and perhaps it collapses, nevertheless, there's going to be substantial damage that will have been done and probably irrevocable damage done to the country. Okay, with that, we move on to Amber and Biden's plan to upend Title IX. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's very disturbing what uh, the Biden administration plans to do to Title IX. There's two major changes that, um, that we need to look at. They have now finalized the language in this new rule and have sent it over to the Office of Management and Budget, which will review it before it gets sent along for public comment. And the two major changes that Biden wants to make is, number one, they want to undo the protections for due process for people accused of sexual assault or misconduct in school that were put in under Betsy DeVos, who was the Secretary of Education under Trump. And what Betsy DeVos did with uh, these new protections in terms of due process for the accused was major. Um, anyone who covered education in the 20... I mean, really 2000 to 2016 time period knows that there were so many cases of men getting just absolutely railroaded and their lives destroyed by their schools because there was really no um, due process for them when they were accused of sexual misconduct. Um, you were not allowed to face your accuser. In many cases, these men were not allowed to have a lawyer present when they were undergoing proceedings. Um, there were cases where the schools allowed the same people to serve as both investigators and adjudicators in uh, the cases uh, where they were trying to, um, to determine whether or not these allegations had merit. And you ended up with a lot of people who were, who were indeed falsely accused and removed from school because of it, um, even though their cases never saw the legal light of day. And um, uh, it was a, a great thing that Betsy DeVos did, trying to introduce due process into that. And now the Biden administration is trying to undo it. Um, if this goes through, you would see more cases like the Rolling Stones story, um, the campus rape hoax that was uh, sort of synonymous with the way that men were railroaded during that time period. The second major change to Title IX that Biden is trying to uh, push through is adding gender identity as a protected category in addition to sex. 
Um, Title IX currently is intended to, of course, create sex separate and equal spaces for women, um, such as bathrooms, showers, restrooms, um, single sex classes, athletic teams, uh, locker room, shower facilities, I mean, all of the above. And if you include gender identity um, in Title IX protections, you basically end up with uh, getting rid of all um, of these potential separate spaces for, uh, for, for women, um, for young girls, I mean, really in the elementary and middle school uh, landscape. Um, it would make it a violation of federal law for a school to have a bathroom that does not allow biological men inside of it. If a, if a boy says that he identifies as a girl, the school would be legally obligated to allow them access to girls and women's spaces. Um, not to mention the fact that there's no evidence for, um, for the benefits of allowing social transitions of children but this is something that would go against everything that Title IX was created to protect in terms of allowing women access to their own spaces at school. It would completely destroy um, every protection that is currently in place for Title IX. So as I said, this is currently under review by the OMB. It will then go to public comment and could be in place as early as probably this summer. And the changes would be immediate and disastrous for every girl who goes to public school. Yeah, just to, to add a few things to Amber's um, excellent summary of this, there's a third major component. Uh, it's not just your due process rights that are under attack. It's not just that we're redefining sex and civil rights law. Um, these regulations, uh, this proposed final rule, um, it uh, also changes the definition of harassment. This is something else that uh, Betsy DeVos and her team, and they are to be commended for doing this. I'm not always a huge fan of her tenure at uh, at ED, but um, they really are to be commended to this because it, it took them a very long time with a hostile bureaucracy to actually go through the rulemaking process. Um, otherwise, we would have gotten all of these changes on day one of the Biden administration um, by by fiat. And, and the fact that they went through that work is the reason that we are getting it now in March before the election. Um, but there's there's also the, the um, matter of defining harassment because schools have been defining harassment uh, in a way that eats into First Amendment protection. So for example, um, what we would recognize as sexual harassment and what the Supreme Court in Monroe against Davis would recognize as, as harassment that the school has to do something about used to be objectively offensive, sustained, and severe enough to actually uh, prevent, a, in this case, a woman from, from using uh, the educational opportunities that are available to her. Um, schools have been defining harassment as, let's say, somebody said something about sex relations that I don't like. Okay, so there's all these different cases of schools using Title IX to shut up students or professors. There's this like feminist professor who has these wild lectures and uses swear words in class. She's getting a Title IX suit, you know, slapped against her. Um, it really does eat substantially into protected speech. Okay, so um, it restores all of that, everything that Amber said about the disastrous kangaroo court regime, a regime, by the way, that um, Joe Biden as vice president was primarily responsible for coming up with and maintaining in terms of his his people. It's his his baby, which is funny because when he himself uh, incurred a wild sexual accusation, um, of course, those standards that he wants to apply to college men of guilty by mere accusation, uh, those did not apply to Joe Biden, obviously. Um but but in any case, this this 
this regulation um, is a massive undermining of all these different elements of the law. Um, and I would just add, finally, there is an element of, of whether bureaucrats should be able to do this. Because don't forget, Title IX applies not just to um, all, all schools who are receiving federal money, which is a good reminder that if a Republican administration got in, uh, there are plenty of levers to push to guide the behavior of universities uh, because they're all dependent on federal money, save Hillsdale and a handful others. Um, but not only does this apply to um, universities, and we always talk about it in the university context, it applies to every educational institution that receives a dollar of public funds. Um, and that is, of course, all public schools in K-12, a not small number of private schools. Um, they keep trying to sweep private schools under these kinds of regulations. They keep fighting it. It's a back and forth when they, they released similar regulations under the Obama administration, the Obama administration said they applied to private schools. Um, and then private schools fought that. That is like the status of that is still sort of um, murky. Uh, so these are, are massive regulations. And they point once again to how a bureaucracy can take a single sentence, a very simple one, about discrimination on the basis of sex and spin it out into all of these different areas. They can redefine sex to include gender identity, they can, but in a way that guts the entire purpose of Title IX, even if one thinks that Title IX was a good thing to begin with, um, they can remove due process protections uh, for those who are accused of sexual misconduct in a way that federal courts, contrary to the way that federal courts have ruled on these issues, there have been hundreds of cases of men who have won victories in federal court and won judgments against their schools for applying these kinds of rules because they so clearly violate um, precedent around due process, constitutional precedent around due process. And yet here the Biden administration is reinstating contrary to what the third branch has said, for example, is harassment or due process guarantees. Um, so this is, this is a massive, massive regulation. It's going to have huge impact both on the K-12 space and on the higher ed space. Um, and so there's 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 a lot there's a lot for the Supreme Court there's a lot for courts to pick through there's going to be a lot of fights over this because my organization IW um, our law center as well as as uh, dozens of other ones have all filed uh, essentially uh, have have filed comment noticing we we have filed comment with the federal government um, now we're going to go through a bunch of APA regulation about whether this regulation is arbitrary and, arbitrary and capricious, and I will not bore everybody with that. But there are a lot of bases to challenge this. Every one of those things, I, I hope, um, will be will be challenged. And the only reason that we didn't have this in unchallengeable form uh, on day one is, once again, is Betsy DeVos and her team that, that really worked hard to get these regulations through, that they actually had to walk through this process to repeal. I don't have much to say. I'm just going to skip my portion here and just say seize the endowments. <laughs> my quick response is this is Biden's war on women. Why isn't it being framed that way? It's a war on the faithful. It's a war on traditional normie Americans. Uh, yet, is he going to pay any political price for it? And, you know, of all the different gaps, when you look at the cross tabs of the polling, it's, of course, women who are probably the dominant block for Joe Biden. Is this going to uh, chip away at that positive gender gap for Joe Biden, or is ignorance going to remain bliss on this, despite the fact that this is obviously an assault on girls in schools? All right. Well, with that, um, finally, we have Inez and uh, loan forgiveness. 
well, we could we could also just skip this whole segment and say seize the endowments, which which will be the uh, the final conclusion. Well, um, so as I've been predicting, kind of week after week on this podcast and everywhere else, um, we have a last ditch attempt before the election at further unconstitutional loan forgiveness from the Biden administration. Um, so Wednesday, uh, that is like when we're recording this, is announcing today $1.2 billion of student loan debt relief for about 150,000 borrowers. And of course, you can be sure he's sending out emails saying, remember, I am canceling your debt, signed Joe Biden, much like Trump put his name on the stimulus check. Um, in, in any case, uh, this is something I've been predicting because it has been predictable. Um, there isn't a lot the Biden administration can do in terms of mass forgiveness like this that won't get struck down eventually through the courts, and I suspect this will be as well. Um, but what he's using it for is a cynical political tool to get young people who are skeptical because he's not anti-Israel enough and and uh, not socialist enough, on um, not crazy enough on, on some of the transgender issues we were just talking about with Title IX. Um, to get some of his his radical young base back in his camp and excited for voting for him. Uh, this is has been a very successful political tool for Democrats in the past. Uh, there is some reason to think it's responsible for their overperformance during the midterms, or at least partially responsible for their overperformance during the midterms uh, in 2022, where, again, Joe Biden promised unconstitutional loan forgiveness. We saw a spike in young people going to the polls and that's because loan loan debt, um, despite the way the right likes to talk about it, loan debt is is a real problem for now two generations of Americans. It is unsustainable. Um, the the amount of debt that people are graduating or not graduating, as forty percent of people who enter university do not do in six years, um, it, it is it is a, a uh, amount of debt that is totally out of keeping with the value of a degree and and the kind of, of financial situation that would not have happened but for the federal government decade after decade stepping in to offer federally backed loans to every high schooler who even vaguely qualifies who's graduated from high school uh, the federal government steps in in a way that a private bank never would and says hey yeah we'll give you a hundred thousand dollars to go study you know some kind of, of, of unlucrative major in a 2000th ranked university um, in many ways this this is basically a predatory lending uh set up. I think we would recognize that if, for example, it was, I don't know, um, travel agencies advertising a really cool trip to Europe for a year, um, just sign here. And then uh, the the uh, the bank was following up with, with the loan. Um, I think we would recognize that as advertised to 18-year-olds at high interest rates that uh, this is, this is, this is something on, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not making a, um, public policy argument uh, to vacate these loans like in court. I'm not saying that they're uh, illegal loans, but I, I think in the the standard definition of predatory, uh, not rather than the legal one, I, I think that these, these would qualify. And I think people understand that, which is why the Republican uh, message that this is all a personal responsibility issue is not landing. The fact that university cost has exploded the way that it has in the last three decades is due to this public policy decision-making. Um, the fact that university degrees have become as necessary as they have been just to get your foot in the door has been an act of public policy-making, among others, the, um, the Supreme Court uh, decision Griggs and its aftermath uh, 
following up in, in the 90s revision to the Civil Rights Act that prevents employers from merely testing for skills um, instead of requiring a $100,000 degree for uh, basically entry-level skills. Um, all of these things add up to a market that young people are going into where you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, the, 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 the cost of a degree is vastly inflated based on its value, but if you don't get that, you're competing in a, a, a shrinking market of jobs that 20 years ago uh, would not have required a college degree and now uh, 20 years ago, quote unquote, do require, or they say bachelor's required or bachelor's preferred at the bottom of that ad. Um, so all of this to say, I don't think this is a pure pub, uh, private, you know, sort of uh, private responsibility problem. Um, and I think that that Republicans, and here's the, the Will's favorite part of, of this, um, Republicans are leaving this political issue on the table cycle after cycle after cycle, um, knowing that that it is a really, really winning issue for the Democrats, that it really does drive uh, a part of, of the American voter base out to vote uh, for Democrats because they're the only ones offering a solution to this. When there's a very politically good and just solution for Republicans to offer, which is it's not fair, it's regressive for mechanics in Ohio to pay off these student loans for these kids. But it is perfectly fair for the university sector to pay off these loans when they have benefited uh, enormously from federal advantages uh, based on taxpayer money that no other product or service has. Um, it, is, it is more than fair to ask them to pay out of their quite fat coffers um, to pay for this student loan mess. Uh, and that, that's, that's something I think will be popular uh, with voters that normally um, are going to Democrats. It will take away this political issue from the Democratic arsenal, which they are going to continue to do. There's an endless number of ways in which they can pretend to extend loan forgiveness before elections um, and then get smacked down by the courts. So uh, this is this is like a self-own, as far as I'm concerned, by the Republican Party. Uh, J.D. Vance has a bill to tax endowments. Um, that, that bill should be on a high priority for Republicans. Uh, it hasn't been. I understand there's a lot else going on in Congress, but um, this is an issue that has a solution for the right that's good for us and bad for our enemies, and we should use it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that I agree with all that. Uh, you know, I've, I've often used the analogy that you know, in any other industry where that cost, you're selling a product for $200,000 to 18-year-olds and half of them don't get value out of it, the FTC would investigate for fraud. And I think the language of fraud is very important to use at the universities. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons I always say seize the endowment is because you seize fraudulently obtained assets. Uh, and that's the way we should look at all this. Um, and I think it, it is important kind of as, as, uh, as Inez talked about that Republicans not just be talking about personal responsibility, when it comes to people being victimized by our ideological adversaries, the universities are not our friend. They are, so they, you know, if, if the professoriate had its way, the Republican Party would be outlawed ultimately or just marginalized entirely. So, um, yeah. And so, I mean, we should, we shouldn't be for, uh, you know, taxpayers paying, being on the hook for student loans, but we certainly should be empathetic with the people who are victimized by these universities. And the ultimate goal should be to make the universities pay for it. Yeah, I definitely think that there's, it's not mutually exclusive to say that um, people should go to college with the intention of getting a degree that's going to have a good return on their investment. And they should avoid taking out $300,000 plus in loans um, that they're going to have trouble paying back, especially once interest kicks in after that first year. Um, but also say that 
an 18 year old maybe doesn't understand the implications of what they're doing. And they've been um, groomed since they were a child to believe that college is their only option and they have to do whatever they possibly can financially in order to get a college degree. Um, and that is uh, fundamentally predatory behavior on behalf of the universities and uh, sort of the, the left-wing elite academic class. Both of those things can exist at the same time. And um, to Inez's point about how this, uh, how we need to be encouraging um, companies and uh, and training centers and all all the like to uh, allow alternatives to college um, for young people entering the workforce is so important. And what these student loan forgiveness programs have the effect of doing is, of course, they further incentivize colleges to continue this behavior, to continue to jack up tuition rates. And we're not getting any closer to actually solving the problem of college being overvalued in general and the rush for our society to move towards making it impossible to have a good living if you don't have a college degree. Uh, I, I concur in pretty much everyone's statements. Uh, I would just say it strikes me that the mess of education finance is precisely as you would expect in a hyper-regulated sector, which is heavily publicly subsidized, nothing even close to a, a free market in education. And then you add on the fact that the schools are populated by left-wing ideologues, and it only further perpetuates the problem. And of course, if you look at the rise, the explosion in the number of administrators at schools, that directly correlates with a massive increase in the cost of getting uh, what may end up being a non-marketable degree that at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in debt. Uh, the other thing I would just point out is, uh, as with almost every single Biden administration policy now, you have to look at it as a vote buying scheme. This is one attempted vote buying scheme. Title IX is probably another. It'd be interesting to see again what the cost of that particular vote buying scheme is. But everything, I think, has to be looked at under the lens of this is 2024. This is an election year and he's trying to shore up certain bases. But it's very interesting to note what those bases look like and whether or not they're going to overcome the potential losses typically in normie America. Okay, and with that, uh, final thoughts. Somebody else want to take this one? I need to second formulate. I'll just comment briefly on uh, this civil case in New York where uh, a hyper-political, zealous, and frankly clownish judge, when you go back to uh, him kind of posing for the camera at the start of that trial, um, in another Fulton County-like jurisdiction uh -huh, in Manhattan, uh, Donald Trump was ruled against in a victimless non-crime of uh, purportedly not being honest in terms of valuations of properties used in getting financing. But of course, the banks extended the financing and Donald Trump paid back the loans with interest. No one was harmed here. Uh, as many people have noted, as a consequence of uh, Donald Trump being fined $360 million uh, plus essentially having his business taken away from him in New York City by this zealous judge that this destroys the legal environment for businesses in New York, the economic climate, the financial climate, et cetera. Uh, Governor Hochul herself 
said that this was an extraordinary case. Extraordinary was her word uh, that normal New Yorkers don't have to worry about this. Uh, but this, of course, completely undermines the entire notion of equal justice under the law. There are no extraordinary exceptions. There's no carve out for Donald Trump in the law. Once again, they're willing to completely eviscerate the entire system purportedly to save that entire system. Uh, I, I have no faith in what appeals will look like in New York, but it's not just uh, whether or not ultimately Donald Trump is able to prevail on appeal in New York or beyond New York. As Jonathan Turley noted, there is a poison pill essentially in the ruling where for Donald Trump to appeal, he has to post the 360 plus million dollars here. Uh, and even for someone who is uber rich, it's hard to have that kind of liquidity. And then even if you can get financing for it, he's not allowed to get financing from New York financial institutions. And he's going to have to pay interest ultimately on whatever is posted to the extent it is finance. And all of this just points to the fact that the process is the punishment here, regardless of whether one prevails in a crooked non-rule of law system, rule of man over rule of law system. Nevertheless, there's such grave damage being done. And once again, I would just say it's irrevocable damage. The genie can't be put back in the bottle. The precedent has been set, and I don't think there's any coming back from it. Yeah, I have, I have a lighter uh, final thought to close on. Um, the experts have spoken. If, if uh, nobody's been paying attention, they have ranked uh, U.S. presidents. Once again, historians have ranked U.S. presidents uh, in such a way as to... Uh, Let's let's say to completely obliterate their own credibility. Big surprise. Um, one for historians, their rankings have an enormous presentism bias. Bias, right? Where like all recent presidents get ranked either really highly or really lowly um, instead of sort of comparatively across history, which is itself a condemnation. If you're a historian, you shouldn't be. Uh, so susceptible to the idea that the last like six presidents really like separated out, right? Um, in any case, right, uh, Joe Biden is apparently the 14th best president that we've ever had. And Donald Trump is the worst president in America's entire history, uh, ranking behind Buchanan, who led us directly into civil war, ranking behind Johnson, who was impeached, right? So um, ranking, ranking behind Wilson, who uh, fortunately on the left is also losing his shine, but is a perennial, let's say, lack of favorite of, of the right, Um there's, there's also additional um, insults like Obama is ranked the eighth best president of all time, uh, which makes him surpass Reagan in these renouncement uh, in these these uh, announcements. Now, objectively, no matter what you think about of the Obama presidency or the Reagan presidency, um, the Reagan presidency included the collapse of the Soviet Union, America's primary foe in the world. Um, it's just it's just like historically illiterate. Uh, uh, I I do think that there's um, there's an important point in this waffle. I mean, of course, it's fun to like just crap on these kinds of rankings because they they just demonstrate again the the dearth of actual expertise or seriousness in the academy. Um, but I do think there's an important sub point here, which is uh, liberals are very successful in laundering their clearly ideological priors into scientific quote unquote type arrangements and people seem to find this really convincing unfortunately right so the famous example i would i would cite is i don't know if anybody remembers the chart about authoritarianism um on the right 
and you just have these two lines where apparently the Republican Party on this graph has just fallen off into authoritarianism in the last 10 years where the, the Democratic Party has stayed perfectly uh, nicely in the democracy part of the chart, right? That's obviously just an ideological prior um, built into an index. But the left is really good at doing that. And a lot of people are fooled and they think, hmm, that's an index. That chart can't be wrong. It must be objective. Um, and I think it's very effective actually strategy that the left uses when they say historians rank Trump as last. Um, unfortunately, people still fall for for blatant sort of uh, ideological laundering like this. I think the right probably should do more of it. You know, we should put more charts that say Biden objectively is the worst president in the history of the United States. Um, in any case, it's just a, it's just a little fun thing to argue about the rankings of the presidents. Um, but I, I do think there's that more important point that uh, oftentimes the pretense of scientific objective uh, objective valence that is given by a chart or an index or a ranking um, is actually quite an effective rhetorical tool used by the left. My final thoughts are going to be about this political article that came out this week about the Center for Renewing America, which is Russ Vought's thing that he started after he left the White House. He was the OMB director under Trump and um, Politico basically just ran this fear mongering piece about how the Center for Renewing America is trying to bring Christian nationalism to Trump's second term by staffing um, his administration with a bunch of like Christian fascists or whatever. Um, Russ Vaught, for his part, is is pretty unapologetic about the fact that he's a Christian nationalist, but obviously he defines it in a different way than the media would. He basically says America was founded on Christian values. We should use them to inform our public policy. There's nothing really scary about that. Um, there are already, uh, you know, half of the politicians on Capitol Hill who do exactly that. And there's nothing wrong with it. We all uh, legislate from some kind of morality. But for some reason, the left and the media think that legislating from a Christian moral framework is somehow especially objectionable and should be um, banned from society. Uh, but one of the amazing parts of this Politico article is their definition of natural law, which they say natural law is the belief that there are universal rules derived from God that can't be superseded by government or judges. While it is a core pillar of Catholicism, in recent decades, it's been used to oppose abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, and contraception. So um, they basically, I guess, went on like Quora or Reddit to get their definition of natural law and just shoehorned it into this article about Center for Renewing America. Um, I talked to someone who is familiar with the, um, the creation of this article, and amazingly, it took them three months to research and write this absolute drivel, which is amazing. And the premise of the piece, which is based on some internal document they claim to have received from Center for Renewing America employees um, apparently does not exist. So um, they have wasted three months on um, a basic lie. Uh, the premise itself is false and then went through and fear-mongered about um, basically a bunch of policy positions that would be incredibly popular to pretty much anyone on the right or anyone who um, identifies as a Christian or a conservative um, so it's just the latest example, I think, of of the media um, completely misunderstanding both conservatives and Christians and um, making that ignorance quite well known by deciding to publish it um, in, out in the open. All right, I'll cover, uh, we didn't really talk much about Israel today, but uh, Netanyahu just got a resolution passed in the Knesset 
basically saying that uh, if the you know if the uh, world decides to unilaterally recognize a Palestinian state, uh, we won't agree to it. We're, we only agree to such an arrangement if we have direct negotiations with the Palestinians. And I guess the most uh, important part of the statement, which he got almost five sixths of the Knesset to sign on to was like that unilateral recognition would prevent any future peace agreement. That's a pretty bold statement. It's the right one. Um, Israel shouldn't tolerate the rest of the world telling it how it deals with Hamas after what Hamas did on October 7th. Um, <clears throat> and I'm just, I'm happy to see that they're, you know, they're serious. There's this, there's this general thought among the Western world that if they just bully and pressure Israel enough, they won't look out for their very vital national security interests and, uh, good on Israel and not just Netanyahu, but, you know, the bulk of the country and, you know, the vast swath of the country politically saying, no, we're not going to tolerate this. And we're certainly not going to tolerate rewarding, rewarding something as abhorrent as the 10-7 massacre with uh, the creation of a state. And with that, that will do it for us today. Um, on behalf of Inez, Ben, and Amber, thanks for tuning in. I'm Will Chamberlain. See you at the next NatCon Squad. <laughs>